Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to 2 Chronicles in chapter 29. We are in the second half of this chapter. We'll be picking up our reading in verse 20 and then reading to the end of chapter 29. We are in the midst of King Hezekiah's reign and are reading about the ongoing reforms which he is leading among the southern kingdom of Judah. Let us pray and then we'll read his word. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would come and help us to understand the scripture. We pray, Lord, knowing that your word is authoritative and it's necessary for us, that it is the means by which we meet Christ and grow in likeness to Christ. And we pray that you would sanctify us by this, the very word of our great and glorious God, in whose name we pray. Amen. Second Chronicles 29, starting in verse 20. Hear now God's word. Then Hezekiah the king rose early and gathered the officials of the city and went up to the house of the Lord. And they brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, and seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls, and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams, and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs, and their blood was thrown against the altar. Then the goats for the sin offering were brought to the king in the assembly, and they laid their hands on them. And the priests slaughtered them and made a sin offering with their blood on the altar to make atonement for all Israel. For the king commanded that the burnt offering and the sin offering should be made for all Israel. And he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet. For the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with, with the trumpets. Then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offering be offered on the altar. And when the burnt offering began, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped. And the singers sang. And the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness. And they bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near. Bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings. And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. The number of the burnt offerings that the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 lambs. All these were for a burnt offering to the Lord. And the consecrated offerings were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. But the priests were too few and could not flay all the burnt offerings. So until other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. 
besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people for the thing came about suddenly. Well, this is God's holy word. And may He bless His word to our hearts tonight. What we have in our chapter is most definitely a work of reform. And it makes us think of the Reformation itself. I alluded to it last week when we heard of Pharaoh denouncing the papists and Calvin then following up teaching in Geneva. Or we could think of Luther's work in Wittenberg, Zwingli's in Zurich, or Cramner in England. But when we think about those reforms, we often picture the swiftness of reform. Sometimes we craft the idea that when Luther tacked up the 95 Theses, October 31st, 1517, that the truths of the Reformation flowed like water release from a dam. This is not what happened. In the case of reform, with all of these men aiming to bring the church back to Scriptures, changes were slow. Zwingli's a good example. Zwingli started preaching directly from the Bible in Zurich, and not the lectionary, going through Matthew's Gospel verse by verse in 1519. He said he embraced justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone as early as 1516. But he didn't openly break with Rome until six years later, 1522. And then it was 1523, four years after consecutive expository preaching through the Bible, that Zwingli engaged in a public disputation before the city council, and they moved away from the authority of the Pope in Rome to that council directing reform worship. Again, all this was gradual. In fact, it was two more years before Zwingli secured the removal of all relics and images and religious processions from the worship of the church in Zurich. And he introduced worship in the language of the people. All in all, that's something like six, maybe even up to nine years of slow change. Now some would say, This is supremely wise because the people need to be brought along. They need to be convinced of the truth, of the right way to worship according to Scripture. Well, it's obvious that King Hezekiah did not take this kind of approach in his Reformation. In the first half of our chapter, which we considered last week, we heard of Hezekiah renewing the covenant with God from his heart and commanding the Levites to get the filth out of the temple. And the impression is he did it in the first month of his reign. He got on the throne and he got immediately to work to reform. Now it took 16 days for the temple cleansing to take place. But now it's become obvious Hezekiah is not only concerned to open up the temple, which his father had shut, but to make things move quickly. And he doesn't just have that temple cleansed. Hezekiah immediately restores the actual practice of public worship. He calls an assembly where the people were to recognize their sin and worship the Lord with gladness according to the law of God. And as we read of this restored worship, a picture to us really of one day, let's see three things in our text. We begin with offerings made. Offerings made in verses 20 to 24. 
You know, just as Hezekiah had acted in his first month to open the temple and cleanse it, no sooner is the cleansing done than he immediately moves to assemble for worship. Verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king rose early. That is, the next day after the temple cleansing was complete. And he gathered the officials of the city and he and they went up to the house of the Lord. Now it has been years since public worship took place by the book among the people of Judah. But Hezekiah with full devotion in his heart is clearly eager to seek the Lord, to plead for God's gracious pardon and to acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from Him. He has the delight of the psalmist. I rejoice with those who said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. There's a gripping drive in his soul to worship, to express grief for sin and gratitude to God for His means of pardoning grace. And in Hezekiah's approach to godly living, when repentance is needed, when communion with God must be restored, there's no time to wait. There is no dragging of the feet to get to the presence of God. And brethren, this pattern should be convicting to us all. How often are we slow about getting before our God to confess our sin? When we know there's a felt distance between us and the Lord, some way we've grieved God, how often do we hesitate to acknowledge our faults or battle even to get into the presence of God to worship His name? We make excuses about our sin. We in our pride don't abase ourselves. But here is Hezekiah getting up at the crack of dawn to get to God's house. Is there that kind of earnestness in our souls to walk closely with the Lord? Is there a desire to rise and run to meet with the Lord? Are you busting down the doors that you could be present in God's house, that you would worship Him with His people? Additionally, Hezekiah isn't just doing this personally. He's stirring up all the officials in the land, all those leaders who had formerly neglected to maintain true religion. And he has them also going to the house of the Lord. This is what the godly should do. We should stir one another up to love and good deeds. We should encourage the assembling together of the saints. If you know of a brother who ought to be present in worship and isn't here, go get him and drag him to where he's supposed to be. That's the pattern this man of God is setting. And what is Hezekiah, what are the leaders so earnest to do? Well, it's to seek reconciliation with the Lord. They know the conduct of the previous regime has provoked the Lord to anger with all the idolatry and with the shutting up of the very house of God. So they come to the temple, verse 21, with seven bulls and seven rams and seven lambs and seven male goats for a sin offering. Now why seven of all of these different kind of animals? Doesn't take a rocket scientist, I think, to figure that out. The number seven represents perfection or fullness. And in this case, there's an acknowledgement of the fullness of sin and the full sacrifices to be offered to God. It's as though they were confessing with Psalm 40 and verse 12. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. 
They are more numerous than the hairs of my head. Sin has prevailed over Judah, and the people have totally forsaken the Lord. Therefore, Hezekiah has them come owning the severity of sin, owning the greatness of sin. And here again, I think there's a place for us to look within. So often we have a temptation upon us to make light of our transgressions. We might actually confess our iniquity, but we still rationalize how our sins were not that bad. Or they weren't as bad as that guy over there. We don't let out all the ugly truth about the depth of the evil committed, or we don't see the extent of our sin, the things left undone, the things that we have done. That's not the case here with Hezekiah. There's a recognition of the truly heinous deeds which are demanding multitudes of sacrifices. But here, these sacrifices evidence a complete turning to the Lord with a sevenfold pattern. Now, there are two types of sacrifices that are being made here. The bulls, rams, and lambs will be whole burnt offerings, and the goats, we're explicitly told, are for a sin offering. These offerings are outlined in Leviticus 1.4. And in the case of the burnt offering, the entire animal was to be burned on the altar, picturing the justice of God falling in totality and consuming the sacrifice. Because only when justice is satisfied, only when the debt is paid, can there be restoration and the outpouring of God's favor. Well, God's favor is what Hezekiah is seeking. The officials know they deserve to die for their sin. But by this offering, they cast themselves on the mercy of God, His very means of reconciliation. And all these burnt offerings will be made in verse 27. And then we have the sin offering. Seven male goats for the kingdom and for the sanctuary and for Judah. In Leviticus 4, where the sin offering is outlined, there's a procedure described for the sin of the anointed priest, for the sin of the whole congregation, for some other leader who sinned, or for the sin of a common person. What appears Hezekiah recognizes, we've all sinned. The kings and officials have sinned. The priests and Levites have sinned. The whole nation of Judah has sinned. So sin offerings for all of them are needed. And the function of the sin offering was to cleanse the worshiper. If the burnt offering pictures God's wrath satisfied, the sin offering pictures the covering of the worshiper with sacrificial blood. These are the theological words propitiation and expiation. Propitiation, the debt is paid and justice is satisfied. Expiation, the sin is covered and we are cleansed. Now as God's people make these offerings, it is clear that they understand a principle in the law that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. Did you notice verse 22? It stood out to me, did it to you? So they slaughtered the bulls and the priests received the blood and threw it against the altar. And they slaughtered the rams and their blood was thrown against the altar. And they slaughtered the lambs and their blood was thrown against the altar. Reading this scene ought to make a profound impression upon us. Try to imagine for a moment 21 animals having their throats slit 
and the warm flow of blood streaming down because they bear your sin. And that blood, picturing your blood, picturing your death, is thrown against the altar. Further, imagine the next scene as the priests step forward and lay their hands on the goats for a sin offering. And the priests are representing all of the people. And the picture here is the transfer of our guilt to these animals. And then seven more animals have their throats slit, verse 23. And the animals are immediately offered up with their blood on the altar. That is, their fat portions are burned. What was the purpose of all of that? Well, there's an echo in our text in verse 24 of something Leviticus 4 said. Leviticus 4 talked about when the person who has sinned comes before the Lord and makes this sin offering, it is to make atonement for him in his sin, and he shall be forgiven. Only in this case, it's not one leader or one person who needs to be forgiven. Verse 24, the sin offering is to make atonement for all Israel. And all Israel is repeated again at the end of verse 24. The whole nation, every part of the nation, needs the forgiveness of God. And as the blood is spilt and the fat burns, the Lord is pleased to pardon sin. It echoes that strange verse in Genesis 8 where the Lord smelled the sweet-smelling aroma, the fragrant aroma of sacrifice, and pardoned sin. Only you and I, brethren, should read this and know Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. If they could, you wouldn't need 28 offerings here. And they wouldn't have to be repeated. The bloodletting conveys a terrifying truth. Sin brings death. Sin is ugly. Sin is painful. Death under the wrath of God is brutal. And yet, God graciously gives away for sinners to be spared, for a substitute to die in our place. But you know, all of this only points to the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Ephesians 5.2, the Father looks upon His Son who is the sweet-smelling aroma as He lays down His life for us. Jesus didn't enter into the holy places repeatedly with the blood of goats and calves. He entered once for all time with His own blood to secure for us an eternal redemption. In other words, Jesus brings the true and lasting satisfaction of our debt. Jesus brings complete covering. For He was made sin for us and He redeems us from the curse of the law. We don't have to come to worship tonight having to spill blood over and over and over. And I guarantee you, you were thankful about that in a way that you can't even comprehend. That you get to draw near to, Christ, to God through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Through one blood spilt, we might say. One sacrifice. We have forgiveness of our sins. The difference here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant should make you rejoice. Nevertheless, there's something to learn from the devotion to these types and shadows of the law. Hezekiah and the officials understand there's only one way to get right with God. It's to come to Him by sacrificial blood with grief over sin and grateful for His grace. Well, brethren, we too come to our Father by means of sacrificial blood with grief over sin and grateful for grace. And we come grateful specifically 
for the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you grateful for that blood which hides all your transgressions from view? Horatius Bonner, 19th century Scottish Presbyterian, he wrote hymns, which are in our hymnal originally though, he wrote them for children to sing. And he wrote this hymn which describes the soul's posture in worship. Listen to the words. I lay my sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. He bears them all and frees us from the accursed load. I bring my guilt to Jesus to wash my crimson stains white in His blood most precious till not a spot remains. Is that how we come to worship? We don't need a fresh kill. We look to Christ who is the new and living way by which we approach our God and we thereby rejoice to draw near to the Lord. Offerings made, but secondly, see with me. Singing began. As the burnt offerings are being prepared for the altar, Hezekiah, verse 25, stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres according to the commandment of David. And then we get word of Gad and Nathan who of the Lord commanded David to make these changes. Remember, the Levites' job used to be to carry around the tabernacle. But when the temple is going to be permanently established, David, by God's direction, gives new roles to the Levites. Now they will be officials, gatekeepers, musicians and singers. Well, the musicians and singers were set apart to give thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Well, as the priests carried out Hezekiah's command to make the burnt offering, we read verse 27, that when the burnt offering began, that is when the fire begins to consume those sacrificial animals, the song to the Lord began also. And the trumpets accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. Now, the chronicler has not mentioned this kind of celebratory singing with musical accompaniment since the days of Jehoshaphat, 150 years before this moment. And even then, when we read about it in 2 Chronicles 20, it was a celebration for a military deliverance. We have to go all the way back almost 200 years to see God's people singing praises to the Lord in worship like this. And what should we make of this note of singing as the sacrifices were offered? Well, yes, death is pictured in those sacrifices. The sacrifices declared judgment, curse, wrath outpoured, and the seriousness of sin before a holy God. But they also declared something glorious. Amazing grace. How could it be that the Lord would provide a substitute for sinners? What kindness that God Himself would permit a way back to Him. These sacrifices are a display of the goodness and covenant love of God. And that covenant love, that dogged determination to love His people and to cleanse His people in spite of His people, to take them as His own even though they previously violated the law, that is worth celebrating. It is a motive to worship. Brethren, we should worship God because He is God and there is no other. We should worship God because He is the Maker of heaven and the supreme ruler of all things. But we should also worship God because He is good. 
because His unchangeable love is staggering. We should worship God because while we fall short of His glory and we warrant His just wrath to wipe us out, God provides a way of atonement. And how much more should we worship and sing and celebrate and stand in awe of God in view of the one offering for sin, God's own Son who laid down His life to cleanse us? Do you understand the magnitude of this? The Father is pleased to crush His Son for whom? For rotten, filthy, low-down wretches like you and me. Jesus is willing to make Himself an offering for guilt and bear our iniquities that we might have peace with God. And how should we respond to that? Well, you could respond saying, well, yeah, I've heard all that before. And that's why I even come to worship because I know this stuff. This is the Gospel. But brother, you never get over the wonder of the Gospel. Do you know the first word in Isaiah 54 after the glorious chapter of Isaiah 53 of the Lamb slain for us, bearing our sins and accomplishing our redemption? The first word of the next chapter is this. Sing. Or better, and I think stronger, shout for joy. And then there are two more words in that verse. Isaiah 54 verse 1. Break forth into loud singing and cry aloud. The salvation of our God, His willingness to pardon our sin, to place His justice on Christ as our substitute, and spare Jesus not to spare us. That must compel singing. And in this case, the singing goes on. Verse 28, The whole assembly worshipped, the singer sang, the trumpeter sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And you might be wondering, when is the burnt offering finished? Some of you might be wondering the same thing about this sermon. Well, it's finished when the burnt offering is quit burning. When the animal is consumed, that's how the burnt offering works. It has to be consumed. I don't know how long it takes to burn up seven bulls, seven rams, and seven lambs. But the point is, they didn't sing just one song. Furthermore, verse 29, when the offering was finished... After the king and his officials bowed down in worship, verse 30, Hezekiah and the officials commanded the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. In other words, Hezekiah said, keep singing, keep turning to the Psalms, keep shouting aloud the praises of our Lord, the memory of all of His deliverances, the truth that He is our rock, the God in whom we trust. Keep telling us, singing of His ways, the ways He's evidenced His steadfast love. Now in this scene, the thing that's really interesting to us is that only the Levites are singing. They are the choir designated in the temple to praise the Lord. But this is another one of the glorious differences in the New Covenant. The praises of God, the role of priests and servants is the role of all of God's people in the New Covenant. Indeed, as God's people are saved by grace, as we're raised with Christ, as we're consecrated to the service of God and filled with the Spirit, unto what end are we given the Spirit? A lot of ways to answer that question. But listen to what Paul says. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
And then he goes on to explain what Spirit-filled looks like. Addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. It isn't Spirit-filled to stand around and listen to other people praising God. It isn't Spirit-filled to sing, to move your mouth to the words while your heart isn't engaged so that your affections are dull and your mind doesn't even consider the words. We are to sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. Listen to Matthew Henry as he comments on this text. He says, It is not enough for us to be where God is worshipped if we ourselves do not worship Him. And that not with bodily exercise only, which profits little, but with the heart. What does the Lord think of people who offer Him worship with their lips, but their heart is far away? He condemns it. Brethren, is our heart worshiping? Is there an overflowing delight in our God and His grace? And you see that even in our text. End of verse 30. And they, the Levites, sang praises with gladness. They bowed down and worshipped. And if the Levites could sing with gladness merely in view of a picture of cleansing, if they could have their hearts warmed and burst with song, humbling themselves before a great God, when they still have to keep making sacrifices for sin, how much more should we praise the Lord when we have lasting purification through Jesus Christ? When we rest on His finished work that washes us and brings us close to God, not to the outer court where the altar was, but we get to go right into the Holy of Holies. If the redemption found in Jesus Christ does not move you to sing, to praise, to give glory to God with a passionate heartfelt, thoughtful expression of deep gratitude. You do not understand grace. Brethren, do we understand grace? What does all heaven do in view of the work of Christ? Justin prayed about it tonight. Revelation 5.8, they sing a new song. Worthy is the Lamb. For you, Lord Jesus, you've ransomed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. And if the purified angels and the departed saints know that they should sing the praises of God, well, we still on earth who have tasted the goodness of the Lord, we must sing His praises. Are you singing? We don't come to worship in the new covenant with a new sacrifice. Jesus is enough. But Hebrews 13.15 says, as those resting in Christ... Through Him, through Christ, we continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. We come sacrificing as we sing to the Lord. Are you eager to bless God's name? Does your heart understand how great this grace is? That forgiveness would come upon you. That God's love would be yours in Jesus. And therefore, you're ready to sing which is the only response that makes sense. Romans 12.1, Paul tells us all we're supposed to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual, or perhaps better, 
our reasonable act of service. The only service that's rational is to give your whole life to this God who saved you through the blood of Jesus. Is that what we're ready to do? And finally, see with me. We get a word about willing service. Hezekiah had directed this assembly with representative offerings for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. But now he turns to all the people and he invites them. Hezekiah says, verse 31, You have now consecrated yourselves to the Lord. Come near. Bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. The people are encouraged to take whatever they have and come close to God to give offerings. In other words, he's saying if your heart moves you and you have something to offer, then do it. And they do. Some are exceedingly sacrificial. End of verse 31, we read, And all who were of a willing heart brought burnt offerings. Now, a burnt offering is the most expensive of offerings. It's way more costly to give up your bull than to pour out some wine as a thank offering to God. Because you're taking the very best of your flock and you're presenting it to the Lord to be wholly consumed. Hezekiah didn't command them to do that, but there were those of a willing heart whose hearts compelled them to give God more, to sacrifice for God the very best that they have. And while the numbers here don't compare to what we saw at the temple dedication, still a lot. 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs are offered as burnt offerings. And there were 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep. Multitudes of households are coming near out of their own sense of sin to give God their very best, grateful for His reconciling grace. And while these were willing worshipers and they came with burnt offerings, we get an interesting note here about the burnt offerings and how they were made and a lack of priests to cut them all up. Now, I've never flayed a bull. I suppose most of you haven't done that either. But folks who slaughter beef in the beef industry in our day, with multiple hands to engage in the work and the best tools that they can have, take something like an hour to two hours to cut up an animal. Now, the priests are not cutting it up for steaks. They're simply cutting it up to arrange it on the altar to burn. But I would still think it's a lengthy process. And you've got 70 bulls and then multitudes of other offerings to slice up. It's an all-hands-on-deck moment, we might say. But there weren't enough priests consecrated to do the work. And this likely tells us of the ongoing problem in Judah. The priests who caved under Ahaz are still in Hezekiah's immediate reformations resistant to what he's doing. And there's a shortage of them. Therefore, it's not a positive comment about the priests. It's shameful that they are not ready to do their jobs, but in God's mercy and to the praise of the Levites, they're standing ready to help. And indeed, we're told into verse 34, for the Levites were more upright than the priests in consecrating themselves. Now, technically speaking, Levites helping with sacrifices is not according to the law. That's the work of the priests. But the Lord, who delights in mercy, who in situations of necessity suspends the ceremonial law, like when David eats the showbread only for the priests when there's nothing else to eat, here the Lord is gracious in the irregularity. If the Pharisees were commenting on this text, they would say all of this is wrong and the Levites are wrong. That doesn't seem to be what God is saying. 
The Levites were more upright in heart. This is acceptable to the Lord. And what we see is the Levites, to their credit, have willing hearts of service. They want the reform that Hezekiah is bringing. Why it appears the priests are slow to accept it. The point being this for us. Brethren, the Lord knows whose hearts delight in His worship. He knows when you yearn for His holiness. He knows when there is a satisfaction with His grace or when your heart is cold to Him or apathetic. Let us make sure we don't come before God as though we're fooling Him, but with a true willing heart to serve. And then we get the grand conclusion of this whole chapter. Verse 35, thus the service of the house of God was restored. But I want you to pay attention on the note as to how it was restored. If we were living in Hezekiah's day, or better, if Hezekiah were living in our day, we would probably be tempted to give Hezekiah a certificate of service, to award him a plaque for bringing Judah back from the brink of destruction. Well, Hezekiah is certainly the instrument God uses to bring reform, but he isn't the source. Did you notice it? Verse 36. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people. For the thing came about suddenly. How do we explain this sudden return to right worship? The swift temple cleansing and opening up for worship, for seeking forgiveness from a holy God. It's because God has done it. Reformation doesn't come because Hezekiah is so smart. It's because God moved in this man's heart and all the glory goes to God. It reminds me of Martin Luther's famous comment about the Reformation in his efforts in the early 1520s. Papists were raging against him. Some of his own followers were going off the rails with radical ideas. Luther had been hiding out in Wartburg Castle uh, because people wanted to kill him. And his protector, his political leader, Frederick the Wise, called him back to Wittenberg because things were nuts and it needed to be stable. Luther began preaching and soon the wackos left and the city was settled in Reformed truth. And then Luther, later reflecting on the situation, famously said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the Word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such, as, such losses upon it. In other words, Luther is saying, I didn't do anything. God in His Word did it all. Calvin is the one who's most consistent in saying "God to God be the glory. But that's exactly what Luther is saying here. Well, brethren, Hezekiah and the people had the same mindset. Yes, Hezekiah is the one who labored. Yes, he lit a fire under the Levites to get to work. Yes, he called the priests to account. Yes, he commanded the consecration of God's house. He called the assembly. But Hezekiah and the people look on this whole thing and they rejoice in what God has done. They say with the psalmist, or like the psalmist, in Psalm 118, when the psalmist is reflecting upon how God took the stone that the builders rejected and made it the cornerstone. 
That's Jesus becoming the centerpiece of all. And the psalmist says, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Well, beloved, do you look at the work that the Lord is doing? The work of grace in your heart? The work of grace in our church? The biblical approach to worship that we have and say with a glad heart, with a glad heart, soli deo gloria. To God alone be the glory. He has done it. All that we seek to do, we are only doing by the energy He gives us to labor for His name. He opens our eyes. He stirs our hearts. He motivates our steps. So who should be praised when we come to worship? It ain't you. We come to praise the Lord because He's done it all. And brethren, that's really the Gospel, isn't it? It's not you and God in a co-op program to save yourself. It's God saves sinners. Praise be to God for this amazing grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that in view of Your grace, grace that welcomes back the fallen, the ruined, those who have sinned grievously, we pray, Lord, that You would receive our praise because You are a God who abundantly pardons. We pray thanking You that You rouse our hearts to seek You, to praise You, to sing to Your name. And Lord, we pray for the operations of Your Spirit within our souls. We pray that we would show ourselves to be those touched by grace by singing Your praises. Lord, let us, as it were, get ready for what we will do in heaven. Let us see worship as a dress rehearsal for glory by blessing the name of our God through Jesus, in whose name we pray all of these things. And all of God's people said, Amen.